Good morning. Our scripture this morning is in Hosea, the first book in the Minor Prophets. If you would turn there with me. Hosea chapter 14. It's right after the book of Daniel, starting in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay you with bowls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. To be able to introduce our uh, guest speaker for the day, um, although in many ways he needs no introduction, I like how Glenn put this a little earlier when he said, our own Logan Howard. Uh, these days, technically speaking, Logan's a member of the Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, but we will always claim him as a Grace Baptist. Um, many of us have seen Logan. Um, we've known him since childhood, and we've seen how the Lord has graciously saved him and worked powerfully in him and uh, raised him into a, a man. And uh, that's truly what Logan is now. He's a man, and I'm happy to say that he's a man of God. But this uh, past month has been crazy for Logan. Um, he, first of all, graduated with his bachelor's degree in business from Boyce College um, there in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he starts uh, very soon his a job with the PNC Bank there in Louisville. And also, I, maybe many of you know this by now, some of you uh, will be happy to hear for the first time uh, that Logan also is recently engaged, uh, engaged to the lovely Hannah Krumbacher, who is here with us today. So yes, Logan is a man. He's, uh, uh, he's, he's doing uh, everything that the Lord's called him to do, and uh, we're excited to see uh, the development to bring him to this point, but we're especially delighted that uh, Logan has a heart for the Lord and that he's uh, expressed his desire to, to serve the Lord in any way that the Lord will use him, and uh, we're happy that the Lord has gifted him with the ability to um, preach his word, and uh, this is now the third time that Logan is going to come and open up the word of God for us, so brother, come and, uh, and bless us. Thank you, Dave, for those very kind words of introduction. It's great to be back here with you guys. I always miss you guys when I'm down in Louisville. 
And uh, I always think of this place as home. This is where I grew up. This is where I learned the majority of what I learned as a Christian. And I will always be indebted to this church and um, to faithful preachers like Pastor Dave for delivering the word so faithfully over the years to me. Now, usually when a speaker will get up here, um, they'll give some kind of introduction that uh, will link into the sermon. I don't have that, so we're just we're just uh, we're just gonna jump right into the context of Hosea, so that you know where we are in this book. So uh, Hosea is a prophet, and he's currently talking to Israel. And in terms of their sin, Israel is an absolute dumpster fire right now. They have given themselves completely to idolatry and immorality. And the reason that they've done this is because they are currently worshiping a false god called Baal, or Baal, um, is also pronounced that way. Now, Baal is the, he's the god of weather, of crops, and of fertility in the soil. And the reason that this is important is because Israel is currently in a very drought-prone land, and so it was important that had they had enough food and water for their crops so they could survive. And the ways that they were worshiping this false god was absolutely horrifying. It was shown in things like ritual prostitution and incest and drunkenness and even human sacrifice. See, Israelites would bring up their own children as offerings just for the sake of fertile ground. And it is in this mess, in this chaos, that Hosea enters the scene. So who is Hosea? Well, He's a minor prophet, as Matthias said. And that doesn't mean that he meant less than the major prophets, such as uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. No, literally, he's called a minor prophet only for the reason that he has a smaller book. So the 12 minor prophets, all their books are smaller than Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and those books. And that's the only reason he's called a minor prophet. But he still had the same job as, as the other prophets. He was called to receive the word of God from God himself and deliver it to God's people. That was, his, that was his job. Incidentally, we don't need prophets anymore because we have everything that God wants to say to us right here in this book. And so it's not necessary for us to have prophets anymore. But obviously in biblical times, they didn't have that book. So God would uh, bring a revelation to the prophets, whether in a dream or vision or just audibly speaking to them. And then once the prophet had that word, it was his job to deliver that word to the nation of Israel. That was, that was his job. And so that's who Hosea is coming into this book and in this chapter. The book, is, uh, the book structure is slightly, slightly complicated, but there's two major parts. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about Hosea and his life and his family and his children. Now, if you're not familiar with the beginning of Hosea, it talks a lot about this woman, Gomer, that Hosea is called to marry. And the thing about Gomer is that God tells Hosea that she is going to be unfaithful to Hosea before he marries her. And the reason that Hosea has to do this is because it was symbolic of God covenanting with Israel, even though he knew that they were going to be unfaithful to him. And so this marriage was supposed to be symbolic of God's relationship with Israel. Those are the first three chapters. Chapters 4 through 14, however, are very different. There's a mix of warnings of judgment because of this gross sin that Israel has been involved in. But then intermingled in those chapters are also chapters of calling of repentance, 
So God is saying through these chapters that I don't want to judge you. I love you and I want you to repent. But if you don't, I must judge you because I must judge sin. And if sin is not judged, he, God is not just. And if he's not just, then he is not God at all. And so sin must be judged. You know, it can be really easy to think, man, thank goodness that we're not like Israel today. Thank goodness that we don't have those sins at all in our lives and that we've really improved since then. But really? Idolatry? Sexual immorality? The murder of babies? Are we really off that hook? Friends, just like there's a judgment coming for Israel, there is also a judgment coming for us. You see, Christ came, he came into the world to save sinners, and he died on the cross, which killed the sin of those who would believe in him. But then on the third day, he resurrected from the grave and went back to heaven. But there is another day coming where Christ will come to claim his people, and those who are not a part of, a, a part of his chosen people will be judged. And so some of us need to hear that today, and we need to repent of our sin because we are not yet saved. And so there is a judgment coming for us today just like there was for Israel. Really, today is not any different as, as, as in Israel. We are in the exact same situation. And that brings me uh, to my main idea for this morning. Repent and turn from idols because only those who do so inherit God's promises and escape death. I'll say that one more time. Repent, because only those who do so inherit God's promises and escape death. I only have two points this morning. Number one is an urgent plea, which is going to be verses 9 and then 1 through 3. The structure of the, of the chapter is a little weird, so I'm going to start with verse 9 and then go to 1 through 3. That's the first point. Number two is an offer of life an offer of life, and that's going to be verses 4 through 8. Number one, an urgent plea. Number two, an offer of life. All right, let's jump right into it. Number one, an urgent plea. So in verse 9, Hosea is giving a final address to Israel after being told to repent. And it's really interesting because in the ESV, it reads, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them as sentences. But actually, they're phrased as questions in the original Hebrew language. So it should, be some, it should be read something more like, who is wise and understands these things? Who is discerning and knows them? And in here, we're supposed to see that Hosea is absolutely shocked at the, um, at the fewness of the Israelites who have actually repented from their sin and uh, who have stayed in their, and then those who have stayed in their sin because of their um, wickedness against God. And then the these things in uh, that first line is referring to all of the warnings of judgment and offers of mercy that have been given, especially through chapters 4 through 14. And so Hosea at this point is absolutely floored that that, that um, they do not understand the judgment that is coming upon them because of their sin. He's beginning to see now that Israel doesn't really see their true condition, which is one of eternal damnation. And because they don't see their condition, they see no reason that they need the mercy of God. 
Then notice this next statement in verse 9, which is pretty bold. The ways of the Lord are right. This is a non-negotiable, non-changing, 100% fact. The ways of the Lord are right. And then there are two outcomes that result from this statement, which are the last two lines of verse 9. Either you're upright and you walk in them, or you're a transgressor and you stumble in them. See, I think what this verse does is put a heat-seeking missile right into the heart of the relative truth movement. See, many places you'll go, you're going to hear things like, it's your truth. If you want to be an atheist and you don't want anything to do with this God stuff and you want to live the life you want to live and do what you want to do, then go for it. That's what makes you happy, then do that. Or if you want to be a Buddhist or a Muslim and you want to take your own path to God, well, as long as, that what makes, as, long as that's what makes you comfortable, then do it. But friend, we need to know that this kind of thinking is not only incorrect, but it is deadly. There are not multiple truths, and everyone does not have it right. There is exactly one way to heaven. John 14, 6 lays this out clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to heaven, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And if everyone has their own truth, then it's really not truth at all. It's just people's opinions about life. Because the thing about truth is that it stands firm regardless of what other people believe about it. And here is the fact. Christianity is true. The question that then remains is how will we respond? If giving an honest assessment, does our character resemble that of an upright person? And that doesn't mean simply doing good things like going to church, giving to charity, being baptized. It doesn't just refer to those things, but it also refers to our inward nature, meaning do we recognize our sin and do we understand what we deserve um, because of our sin, which is hell? And then in response to God showing mercy to us, uh, live for him in gratitude. That's what it means to live uprightly. Or do we continue to ignore the warnings of God and, and live our lives of sin because it feels better or we want to be our own authority or something else? Friends, heed the warnings of God. We should urgently pursue wisdom and mercy to escape this inevitable judgment. Walking uprightly requires that our hearts are so full of joy in the Lord and so full of love for the Lord that we cannot help but worship him with every single thing that we do. If we truly belong to the Lord, our desi the desires of our heart will begin to change. We will begin to love what God loves and hate what he hates. Friends, walking uprightly does require action. But its source is a love for the Lord, not a love for self-justification. There is a judgment coming, and justice will prevail. That's true for Israel, and that's true for us. But here is the most important part of this warning being given. Mere information does not change a person's heart. I'm going to say that again, because it's very important. Mere information does not change a person's heart. If that were the case, 
all of Israel would have been converted because they would have just understood, they would understand that they were wicked in their ways and they would turn to the Lord and then everything would be butterflies and rainbows. But that's not the case. And the same is true with the gospel. It, just telling people the, new, the good news of Jesus Christ is not going to change their hearts. Why? Because it is not in our power that a person changes. It is the work of the Lord that changes a person's heart. And really, when it comes to us, that should help us with things like our evangelistic efforts. See, that should take a lot of pressure off of us. We are called to give the word to people who do not yet know the Lord, but we are not called to effect any change in other people. And, and the reason I bring this up is because Hosea is actually functioning as a sort of evangelist in this passage. See, he knows that he's supposed to take the word that God has given to him and then give it to other people, but he's in no way expected to actually be the person that changes people's hearts. And so that means when we come back to verse 9, these, these words wisdom and discernment are not kinds of wisdoms that we can just kind of make appear out of thin air. Wisdom and discernment that draws us to God comes from God himself. And so then there might be one big question that remains in your mind. If God saves and people don't, why is Hosea doing this at all? Or why do we evangelize for that matter? If we're not the ones affecting change and God can save who he wants, then what, where, what is our role in this? What's the point of risking being ridiculed and persecuted and in some parts of the world even killed because of this faith? Well, Romans 10.17 answers that pretty clearly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So God has called us to be messengers of the word. And then through our message is how God works in the lives of other people. That's how he has chosen to deliver his word to people. We deliver the word. That is our role. That is commanded. That is not an option. We deliver the word to people. And then through the information, God works by the spirit to change a person's heart. And that's how that works. And Hosea knows this very well while speaking to the Israelites. So how is it that Israel, and we for that matter, escape God's judgment? Well, it's by being upright, and that is started through the act of repentance. So if you want to go back to verse 1, we're going to stop at the, start at the, uh, the top of the chapter now and work our way down. Right away, we see the call of Israel to return to the Lord. And this isn't just like, this isn't God just saying, yeah, come on back. I mean, you've sinned, but I guess I'll let you in. This isn't, no, that's not what's happening here. There is much passion and pleading because God does not want to judge Israel, but he will because they're in their sin if they do not repent. And it's, it's, it's really interesting when you think about it too because up to this point, Israel has just spat in the face of God and everything that they've done since he's covenanted with them. They have turned their backs on him and sinned against him in all kinds of ways. And despite that, God is still calling Israel to repent. Just think about the mercy that is being shown here. And why would God do this? Why does it make any sense that, you know, he? because it would be in his complete rights to just smite Israel right there 
and then they would never be seen again. That would be in God's right, but he doesn't do it. Why is that? Well, it's because of one very simple, very profound truth. God loves his people. That's why Israel was still there, and that's why we are still here. See, many people today believe the God of the Old Testament to be a tyrant. But if we really have a clear understanding of the severity of sin that was going on in this book and in our lives, I think we wouldn't, we wouldn't really see it as God being a tyrant so much as it is him being absolutely just. It is just for God to judge. But because of his love, Israel and we can be saved. See, Israel needed to come to understand the condemnation that they were in was also their fault. That's why uh, the second line of verse 1 exists, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. God warns Israel because of their sin and us because of our own sin. I think this is very helpful for us to see the difference between God and Satan making us aware of our sin as Christians. Because you do realize that that is both of their goals, right? If you're a Christian, Satan, in a way, wants you to make you feel bad because of your sin, and God also wants you to make you feel bad for your sin. But the strategies are very different. See, when Satan, tr when Satan wants to make us feel bad, he is going to try to push us away from God. He's going to say, how? He's, well, first, no, so let me back up. First, he's going to tempt you to sin. That's Satan's job. And then when you give in to that sin, he's going to be like, how could you do that? Man, you idiot. Like, how could you fall for that sin again? And you can't go back to God. You're worthless. And the more you give in to sin, the more you believe that. And the more your conscience is hardened. And so you just stray further and further from God until death. That is Satan's strategy. But God's is very different. What does God do when he wants you to feel your sin? He says, come back to me. The closer we are to God, the more we will feel the sting of something called conviction. And that is also called godly sorrow, which is this kind of pang that we feel in ourselves when we sin that the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts to keep us on the path of righteousness. And it'll hurt. But while the sting of con while conviction might sting, God's wrath wields much more, much more eternal pain. See, God is actually showing us mercy in conviction when we are we when we are in sin. And so let me ask you, do you feel the sting of conviction in your life? Because this is a huge mark of a Christian. And if the answer is no in your own mind, I would beg you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a more sensitive conscience because that is what keeps us on the path to life. Okay, moving on to verses 2 and 3. We see more clearly how repentance is done, which is namely through prayer. Now, it's important to note at this point that in the quotes in the second half of verse 2 through verse 3, this isn't what Israel prayed. This is what Hosea said Israel should pray. 
And so very similar to Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, when he says, Our Father in heaven, he says, Pray them like this, and then gives the quoted section. That's what Hosea is doing for the Israelites here. Um, and by the way, repentance through confession is commanded in Scripture. 1 John 1, 9 makes that very clear. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so that's a wonderful promise, but it starts out with, if we confess our sins, then he'll forgive. And so that is a command. And we can be forgiven, which is great news. And that is brought forth through repentance. So in this prayer, starting uh, with take away all iniquity, there are actually four different aspects of the prayer that I want to work through. And so the first one is simply take away all iniquity. And, you know, what's implied here is that Israel is in need of forgiveness. Because sin is not a small issue. In fact, it is the most deadly issue that Israel and that we face, to, face today. And Israel needed to be made aware that they were in need of forgiveness, and so are we. The second aspect of this prayer starts in the next line. It says, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. See, this more showed how sin could be forgiven. And this time, sin was atoned for with animals. And forgiveness was granted by God through the slaughtering of um, animals and vows that were made. Um, what's, what's being talked about here in verse 2 is most likely uh, peace offerings that are being made between God and man. And so that's how forgiveness came. But there's an interesting word in this part of the prayer, and that's the word good. Accept what is good. Now, that has a lot of meanings, and it can be really ambiguous. So what is it that we're talking about here? Well, this rendering of good means pleasant. And so what this means is that God must accept something that brings Israel favor. And then and so when they had the sacrificial system, the reason that any of that existed was because sin required death. And so through the sacrifices that were made um, from animals, that, that, um, that paid for their sin in that time, and that caused God to be able to look down on Israel with favor. So that's what that meant here in this text. And did you know that we actually have the same requirements given to us? God must see us favorably for us to live. See, many people will tell you that you're not good enough that you're, you are not worthy of God. And I would say that they are absolutely correct. We are not worthy of God because we are sinners. So are we doomed? No. And that's because a better sacrifice has been made for us. Because we are sinners, we do not deserve salvation. But because of God's love for us, we can be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. See, in, in the Israel's days, they had their sacrifices, but it was ultimately a failed system. But when Christ came, he put an end to all sacrifice because he was the perfect and complete sacrifice for everyone who would repent and believe in him. And it's really 
it's really interesting if you understand what the theology, I'm not going to spend long on this, but I want you to understand, when Christ was hanging on the tree, he took all of our sinful records. And so when God looked down on him, he saw sin, and so the fullness of his wrath was executed on his son Jesus. But that is not all that happened. Jesus Christ's record of perfect obedience was also given to us. So at the same time that Christ was being executed for our sin, his perfect obedience was being imputed to anyone who would believe in him. And so when Christ looks on us who are deserved sinners, he sees his son. And we get to go to heaven and not hell because of that. Christian sin can no longer kill us. Now that doesn't mean that we are sinless, but it means that we have the, the ability to say no because of the Spirit. And the best news is that we, we will no longer, we no longer are in danger of experiencing the second death because of Christ. Friends, we are not good, but Jesus is, and so we live. The third aspect of this prayer uh, is the beginning of verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will, no more say, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. So in this, Israel is explicit, explicitly being called, of, uh, called out of idolatry. Now the first, the first example that I give is Assyria, who in this time is an incredibly feared nation because, first of all, they're super, super strong. They have a bunch of chariots and horses, and then when they, when they capture the nations that they want to, they do horrific things to them, and everyone knew it. And uh, Israel has tried to partner with them to get on their good side so that they wouldn't be conquered by them. And then the second thing, the second is uh, handmade idols. We will no more say our God to the, to the work of our hands. So that refers to handmade idols. And so Hosea in this part of the prayer is saying, get away from them. They're deadly. And here is what is especially interesting about Assyria. We see we've been talking about there's a judgment coming from God to the Israelites. And do you know how that's going to come? Through the Assyrians. So think about this. Israel wants to partner with Assyria so that they're not in danger. But at this time, Assyria has Israel right where they want them for it to be a flawless conquering of them. Sin will comfort us until it crushes us. Back a couple Aprils ago, uh, this was in the year of COVID, and there were no uh, spring breaks, and so I was getting, uh, me and a couple of my friends were getting pretty burnt out, and so we decided to uh, get a change of scenery from Louisville, and we decided to just go to Florida for a few days. And uh, we, it was, uh, it was a long drive. It was like 15, 16, 17 hours. I can't remember with the traffic. But we were staying at um, one of my roommates. Uh, one of my roommates had grandparents who has a beach house. And uh, so we stayed, we stayed right on the beach. And because we were tired of all traveling all day, we, we didn't go on the beach that night. But we went the next morning. Because if you're going to be by the beach, it's a necessity that you go to the beach and, and the ocean specifically. But apparently, it is not a necessity for me to wear sunscreen. 
So <laughs> anyway, uh, we're so we're in the ocean. It's like 90 degrees outside. I don't think there was a cloud in the sky, and we were in the ocean for probably 30 or 45 minutes. And so I didn't feel anything happening because the ocean was really cool. But we got out of the ocean, we went and got food, we got along with our day, and I could feel the burn starting to come on a little bit. And as the day went on and on, I got redder and redder, and I was in a lot of pain that night, but there wasn't a ton of color. But when I woke up the next morning and looked in the mirror, guys, if Pepto-Bismol were a person, (laughs) that's what I looked like. I was in so much pain because the ocean was actually probably burning me more because of the water's reflectiveness, but I didn't feel a thing until it was way too late. And this is Satan's strategy for us. See, he wants us to feel comfortable in our sin, but we cannot give in. And honestly, this is hard because Sin feels good, doesn't it? It does feel good. There's something exhilarating about getting into, giving into sin right away. And if that weren't the case, no one would sin. But that's exactly Satan's plan. He wants us to like it. He wants us to be comfortable in it so that we walk right into the mouth of hell along with him. This is what happens when we give into idolatry. The fourth and final aspect of this prayer is the very last line in verse 3. In you, the orphan finds mercy. See, first, Hosea needs Israel to know that they are orphans because of their sin. And this actually meant a couple of things. It means what we think it means when, you know, their, their parents, uh, some, of, some of them had parents who were judged by God in earlier generations. And so they were orphaned in that sense. But... In those days, an orphan carried a very significant extra layer of meaning. And that meant that Israel did not have any kind of inheritance. And if, when, as Israel read this, it, they, would, they would have known that, and this would have just made their skin crawl. But then, what is the inheritance that they were losing? Because it had to be pretty significant if Hosea is going to put it in a life-or-death kind of warning. Well, the inheritance is life. Their lives are on the line because they have given into their sin and they have not repented. But death does not have to be the end. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This is the key to the first three verses. And it is mind-blowing that God would even give them such an offer. And think about the past. There was Israel's wicked, and they went to the uh, they went, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And then God brought forth the Exodus, and like two million Jews were saved. Then they went into the wilderness and they rebelled, but then God fed them and he gave them water, then they rebelled, and that pattern happens over and over and over again. And this, in in our passage today, this is perhaps the most wicked state that Israel has ever been in. Yet, mercy is still being offered to them. And friends, the offer of mercy and salvation that is offered to us is no different. 
One thing I've learned in studying this passage is that I've thought about hell, and it says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which are two different responses. And I, I think if God had left me orphaned, I don't think I'd be able to be angry and gnashing my teeth. I think I've been shown enough of my sin where I would know, where I would, I would have, I know that I would have earned every ounce of punishment coming my way. But my father loves me and he sent his son for me and Jesus died that I might live. I stand before you as a former orphan who has found mercy in the Father. Maybe you know God has been merciful to you, but it doesn't, it doesn't really like get to you. You don't really care. And to cure this, I would recommend that you get to know the weight and the severity of your sin. Because if we have a shallow view of our sin, we're going to have a very shallow view of God's mercy. It's like, big deal. So I did a couple things wrong. What, like, what, what's the difference? But if we take time to explore the depths of our sin, yes, it's going to hurt because of that thing called conviction I was talking about earlier, but we are going to get such a deeper view of the mercy of God. And hopefully it gets to the point where we're not in a position where we think we deserve God's mercy, but, in, but maybe we ask in bewilderment, how could God save a sinner such as I? Repent of sin and return to the Father, for he is waiting for you with arms open wide. That's point number one, big point one. Big point number two, an offer of life. This one's shorter. Uh, so the next few verses, as I said before, are a series of promises. Now, these are not promises that Israel had received, but they are promises that they would receive if they, if they repent and return to the Lord. And so there's three of them, and I, I want to make my way through them. So the first one is salvation, and that's verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God's anger does not turn on the person who repents. And so what's implied here is that God is currently angry with them because the promise is that he won't be if they come back. And that word apostasy, uh, it means backsliding. Now that doesn't mean that they were once saved but, and now they're not, but it could mean and probably does mean that they at least identified with the things of God and have now just completely lost interest. Um, and the fact of the matter is that God cannot simply ignore sin. Because God is just, sin must be dealt with. And the promise is that God's wrath will not be on them if they repent. That's the first promise. The second promise is strength, and that's verses 5 and 6. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Now, this language can be really hard to understand, and so we have to make, we have to make our way through it carefully. First, we see that God is the dew to Israel. Now, what this means is that God is the source of life. As dew is to the plants, so God is to Israel. That's what that means. And with God as the life giver, the following things happen. 
First of all, Israel will blossom like the lily, which means they will grow. They will grow as Christians. They will, they will, um, they will love the things of God and hate the things of man more than they currently do. Um, and they will, just, they will just be like over the moon to make the glory of God known. That's what that means. If there's no growth, so, so since there is no growth now, that probably is evidence that they were never saved. But with repentance, growth will follow. And that's true for Israel and us today. The second, uh, the second part of this promise is that Israel will take root like the trees of Lebanon. Now, this is a weird one, but it actually is a symbol of strength. And it relates directly to the healing of apostasy. You see, when Israel had given into their ways over and over and over again, that sign, that's a sign of a weak or probably a dead faith. But taking root like the trees of Lebanon is symbolic for God is going to hold them so fast in their faith that no matter what comes their ways, whether trial or suffering or sin at all, none of that is going to affect them and they will stand firm in their father. And we would, like Israel, fall from the Lord if it was not him that was sustaining us in the first place. You know, perhaps we believe that we can hold on. Like we have, you know, good days of reading our Bible and praying and we can like give ourselves the glory for that. But that's, that's just our pride. Anything that we do for the glory of God does not come from us, but it comes from God himself. And we are sustained by him and him alone. Finally, in this part of the promise, we see that the fruit that sprouts forth as a result of devotion, we see the fruit that sprouts forth as a result of their devotion to the Lord. Um, the beauty of the olive and the fragrance are Lebanon, as pointed out, as things that last through trial. So they are the results. Verse 6, specifically, um, are the results from God starting to give them life and then holding them fast. The third big promise is verse 7, which is prosperity. So I'm going to read it. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, the word, uh, so I, I entitled this third promise prosperity. And honestly, in a lot of our circles, prosperity has taken on a very negative connotation because the first place our mind goes is the prosperity gospel, which is the health and, you know, health and wealth and all of that garbage. Um, but prosperity is actually a good thing. It is. And prosperity here means growth and fame of God and the fame of God's kingdom. So we are we will prosper in our walk, growing in the strength that the Lord provides, and God's kingdom will grow through those people who have been strengthened by God. And so that's what it means to be prosperous here. And all of that is done under the shadow of God. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. And so here is an image of protection. And so all of this growth, all of withstanding trial, all of these promises are being kept because God faithfully and eternally protects his people. It's beautiful. So these are the promises. And then verse 8 is a really nice summary of verses 4 through 7. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? 
It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. God freely loves his people. And through these promises, he wants to show Israel that he is so much better than all of these idols they've been worshiping. So then, after all of this, after all of the warnings, what happened? Did they repent? Did they turn from their sin and to life? No, they did not. They did not repent, and they were completely destroyed by Assyria. You see, we can read something like this and think, how could they have done that? Couldn't they see the wrath of God looming over them? Well, no, they couldn't. And the reality is, those questions can be asked of us as well. If someone were to write a book about us and name all of our sins that they were black and white ink, people would ask the same things. How could they have been so foolish? Friends, we're in the same position. How could we turn to such worthless idols that lead to nothing but death? Maybe we don't want anyone in authority over us. Or maybe we like the one promise that idols do hold to. They will never wound our pride. Idols will comfort us. That's the one promise they do keep, but they lead only to death. Usually, a preacher will ask at this point, what are the idols in your life? And that is, they are very important to identify, and we should do that. But there's an immediate follow-up question that I want to ask. Is that idol worth your life? See, some have committed to putting idols to death. Some have said that even though sin is tempting, they're going to kill it every single day by the grace that God gives them. And they are going to live for Jesus Christ and walk that path. But some have not. Perhaps there are some people even here who are either on the fence and don't know which way they want to go, or they have completely given themselves to idols and want nothing to do with God at all. Friends, hear me. We have promises today, like Israel did, if we repent and return to the Lord. And they're riddled throughout the New Testament. Let me give you some of them. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. James 4.7, submit, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Luke 1.50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Revelation 21.6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. 
Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his riches and glory, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All of these promises and more are given to the person who believes in the name of Jesus. And so I leave you with one question. Will you repent of your sin and cling to these promises that God has given to everyone who believes in his name? Or will you be eternally judged by God while the promises that could have been merely ring in your ears?